You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word history? Maybe it's dusty old textbooks with a bunch of dates you have to memorize and awkward black and white photos. Or perhaps you're more like me and it reminds you of boring classes that were forced on you by academics that thought they knew what was best. Look, either way, the topic comes with a lot of baggage. Some of it is deserved, but a lot of it is not. This week, we're opening the book on the history of financial scandals, bubbles, and crises. Helping us understand why this is knowledge you can't do without is Tim Price, partner and director of investment at PFP Wealth Management, and author of the book Investing Through the Looking Glass. This is like a kind of like a science fiction sort of black comedy that, that, that we keep on just mankind just keeps on making the same mistakes over and over and over. A new technology en- enables us to, um, to to find new new innovative new ways of, of crashing the system. But the bottom line is the, the underlying uh, ethos, the underlying mentality is, is, is a sort of constant. Sir Winston Churchill once said, the farther back you can look, the farther forward you are likely to see. It may feel like we're in unprecedented times, or that some would even argue that this time is different. Look, whatever you believe, history is riddled with explosive tales of irreducible human nature and cautionary lessons of greed, euphoria, fear, and mass delusion. Fail to learn at your own risk. This week on Adventures in Finance, Crises, Bubbles, and Scandals, Part 1. Also, coming up in this week's episode, we have our usual long, short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and, of course, the not-so-good stories of the week. Um, I am short the dollar. Um, recently, Zhu Xiaochuan, who is the PBOC governor, he, he penned um, an article welcoming the use of local currencies to finance uh, One Belt, One Road projects. I'm long the addictive power of lightning bolts, Aaron. Now, there's a guy called Roy Sullivan I was reading about, and Roy Sullivan was hit by lightning a record seven times, and he survived each and every one of them. And finally, in our Things I Got Wrong segment, we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made, and then we ask them to share a nugget of wisdom that our listeners can hopefully learn from. Yeah, we've got the uh, the exceptional Alex Gurevich, uh, the chief investment officer of Honte Investments, and the author of a book called The Next Perfect Trade, A Magic Sword of Necessity, which sounds like a fantasy novel, but it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable book about investing and trading, which uh, I would recommend everybody. Reed. I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time with Alex um, recently, and he's just he's just a fascinating guy. And he talks about mistaking, um, or making the mistake rather, of conflating market forecasting with certain other fields of expertise. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is May 11th, 2017, and welcome to episode 15 of Adventures in Finance. James, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. A little empty today, it feels. Yeah, well, hardly anyone's in the office. No, no, no. I mean, I, I kind of got used to Grant sitting there. It was, I don't know. I haven't noticed. Today. Well, we have him on the line instead. Grant, how are you doing? Yodelay. 
Well, fellas, ah. uh, I am in the beautiful Swiss Alps this week. I, well, you can't say exactly where you are in the Swiss Alps, but uh, I cannot you, say exactly where I'm in the Swiss Alps because I'm <laughs> I'm here to film some fantastic content for Real Vision, which involves visiting um, a highly secure uh, gold vault, the largest private gold vault in the world, which has been a truly uh, just a fascinating experience. I have to say, it's uh, it's a remarkable place. Well, it, it's funny because when you said you're in the Swiss Alps, my only exposure to that is like in James Bond movies, watching James Bond skiing down the slopes away from the bad guys. So, and then you tell me you're you're looking at this big, huge gold vault. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing. It's I mean, look, we're the first people to have been and filmed in there, and it's uh, it was a real privilege and and just a, a truly extraordinary place. And you know, as as I said while we were while we were filming, it, it's only when you see the lengths that people go to to protect uh, gold is when you really start to understand the, the true value that people put in it. It's, it was a remarkable day. So uh, I, I've had a fantastic day, and here I am talking to you two. Well, let's get on first to our long short segment where Grant and I go through the good and not-so-good stories of the week. Grant, you're not here to play rock, paper, scissors with me, so I will be a gentleman and let you go first. All right. Um, okay, let's do let's – do, I'm going to do my short first. Aaron, I'm going to do my short first. And my short uh, for this week is, uh, once again, and I don't want to beat on this, but it's politicians. Um, and particularly the ones that really do have no clue what they're talking about. And recently in the UK, there was a just a, a car crash of an interview with a lady called Diane Abbott, who is the Shadow Home Secretary in the UK. And she was, um, she was on a, a, a phone-in show um, to talk about uh, the Labour Party's policy to add 10,000 more police officers. Uh, uh, the first question she was asked was how much it would cost, at which point she said it was going to cost £300,000, which worked out to about £30 per police officer. Uh, then she said <laughs> the next, uh, if they recruit the 10,000 policemen oh. and women over a four-year period, it would be about £300,000. So she kind of clarified that. Uh, then she said, oh, no, sorry. Uh, what I meant was oh. um, about £80 million. That worked out to be about £8,000 each. Um, then she said that uh, they anticipate recruiting 25,000 police officers a year, at least, over a period of four years, which brings the total to 100,000 police officers instead of the 10,000. Um, and then, to make matters worse, she then said they were going to recruit 250,000 police officers um, uh, over, uh, where are we, 250,000 police officers, which was going to cost $64.3 I mean, it was... It's an extraordinary interview, and we should put a link up to it uh, just so you can listen to a politician who clearly has absolutely no idea what she's talking about but assumes she can bluff and bluster her way through a conversation with a far smarter um, radio host. It, it, I mean, it's, it's laugh-out-loud funny, oh, but it's tragic at the same time. So I, I am, once again, short uh, politicians. Would you say, Grant, that this is the equivalent of a Miss South Carolina moment where she talked about <laughs> Iraq and yeah, such well, as? Yes, but I mean, look, Miss South Carolina, uh, bless her, um, was uh, is, a, is a young teenage girl with no experience in the world. This is this is the deputy home secretary who you would think would have a basic working knowledge, a basic working <laughs> knowledge of either her party's policies or perhaps math. One of the two would be would be quite handy. But uh, again, it was just another remarkable example of somebody completely clueless figuring they were smart enough to bluff themselves through it, and it ended in horrible, horrible failure. 
Well, Grant, next time, maybe if you're on like a cross-continental flight or something and want to go down the rabbit hole, I recommend going on YouTube and Googling, um, I forget which state he's from, but there was a, a U.S. Um, congressional representative who, who they were, I think they were discussing or having some kind of hearing about placing more military on an island in the, in yes, the Pacific. Yes, I saw that. I saw that. They're, <laughs> you know what I'm talking tipping, about, right? Tipping the island over. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Aaron, oh, we, should, we, should be, we should be really careful here because, you know, putting a podcast out, we, we are we are one similar gaff away from uh, karma coming around and biting us both in the ass. So we need to be a little bit careful here. Yeah, true. Well, I don't think I'll make that same mistake because I'm on an island, but I, I agree with you. Let me get on to my long. Well, actually, Grant, it's a long and short. It's a two four, two for one. Um, I am long currency wars and short the dollar. Now, right. short this is dollar, over okay. a longer term, but recently, um, recently, Zhu Xiaochuan, who is the PBOC governor, he, he penned um, an article welcoming the use of local currencies to finance uh, One Belt, One Road projects. And he said that, I quote, this initiative is to build a common community with risk and benefit sharing through extensive consultation and joint contribution. Now, after listening to that, I said, you know, one, what does that even mean? And two, let, let's call a spade a spade here, right? This is about bringing regional countries into China's, let's call it, you know, their monetary sphere of influence. Orbit. Um, by essentially orbit. entrenching, yeah, orbit, yeah, maybe that's uh, more apt. Uh, but, but essentially by entrenching and internationalizing the RMB via the One Belt, One Road project. So, you know, but I think when it comes down to it, Chinese commercial banks are going to be financing this. So maybe this is an intermediate step um, where Chinese and foreign workers will be compensated in local currency. But I think the ultimate goal here is probably to get people to convert that local currency uh, back into RMB. So um, that's 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 my long. And then the corresponding part to this actually is, um, I think you have to pair that with a recent proposal that was put forward by Japanese representatives at the uh, Asian Development Bank's annual summit. Uh, and the focus of this proposal was to reduce the reliance on the US dollar through a bilateral currency swap framework. And this was put forth by Japanese representatives. Uh, for those of you who don't know what a currency swap is, um, put it simply, it's basically an agreement between central banks to allow uh, other central banks to obtain foreign currency liquidity in the case that they need to recapitalize their commercial banks, for example. Uh, in this case, it would be the yen. But Thailand's central bank governor, and I'm not going to try and dismember his name. Uh, <laughs> Thai names are pretty difficult to pronounce. Uh, but he said, I quote, creating a, fi a financial safety net at a regional level is important to help provide immunity against uncertainties, as if that's even possible. Um, I think the initiatives now moving forward using Asian currencies, local currencies, that is very welcome. Now, the lunacy of the Bank of Japan notwithstanding, I think both of these headlines um, and both of these statements and events are US dollar negative in the long run and is part of the long game in the global de-dollarization trend. So Grant, this week I am long currency wars and short dollar. Well, you know, it's interesting, Aaron. Um, you know, I, I gave a presentation about this, uh, the internationalization the, the internationalization of the renminbi in December of last year um, and talking about uh, the number of countries now trying to bypass the dollar. Uh, and, you know, and, I, and I agree with you. And actually this week I saw a story that Portugal are going to issue uh, yuan-denominated debt. So this this idea of people wow. uh, trying to... Pan, is that uh, called a panda bond, I believe? Uh, panda bond? Well, we'll see, uh, maybe the Portuguese have come up with uh, some kind of um, clever title for it. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. But, mm. but they, they are certainly going to finance... Uh, a bond issue in Yuan, uh, and you're right. The international, the international. I've got, to, I've got to stop trying to say this. The internationalization of the renminbi is a real. Um, it's it's the real deal, and it, and it is a challenge to U.S. dollar hegemony, and it's something that is picking up speed. So you know, I, I have to say, I, I've 
I've thought this for a while, and I completely agree with your uh, your long and your short this week. I think that's uh, that's a good call. Well, now it's uh, we need to get your long, Grant. Yeah, mine's a little put me more esoteric this week. You know, it's all my time on planes, reading strange stories and, <laughs> and having weird and wonderful thoughts. So this week, I'm long the addictive power of lightning bolts, Aaron. Now, there's a guy called Roy Sullivan I what? was reading about lightning bolts, getting hit by lightning bolts, and <laughs> Roy Sullivan was hit by lightning a record seven times. And he survived each and every one of them. Now, Sullivan was a park ranger in the Shenandoah National Park, which I guess that job probably puts him uh, more in harm's way than the average man in the street. But the odds of being hit by uh, lightning are 1 in 10,000 over an 80-year lifespan. The chance of getting hit seven times is 1 in 10 to the power of 28. Now, the first time, the first time Sullivan got hit, uh, he was in a lookout tower, hiding from a thunderstorm in a lookout tower, uh, and there was no lightning rod on the on the tower. I mean, if you're hiding a look at it, you deserve well, it. Well, yeah, look, it was hit seven or eight times, it said. Inside the tower, fire was jumping all over the place, <laughs> and it burned a half-inch strip all along his right leg, hit his toe, and left a hole in his shoe. The next time he got hit um, was uh, about 25 years later. He was in a truck, driving on the road. The metal body of a vehicle normally protects people like this, like a, a, acting like a kind of a... Um, a Faraday cage, but the lightning hit trees nearby and was deflected into the open window of the truck, knocking him unconscious and burning off his eyebrows and setting his hair on fire. So at this point, you probably think, <laughs> you know, my luck's really not in. One year later, uh, he was in his front yard, got hit by a lightning bolt, which hit him in the shoulder. Uh, two years after that, again, working as a ranger, uh, his hair got set on fire by another uh, lightning strike, which he tried to... <laughs> How does this guy have any hair left to set on fire? He tries to put the flames out with his jacket. Um, And at this point in time, strangely enough, apparently, he he started to believe that perhaps there was some force trying to destroy him uh, (laughs) and uh, would always sort of lie under his truck whenever a lightning bolt came. But just one year later, he sees a storm cloud forming while he's out in the park and he drives away. But as he, he, he was later quoted as saying that the clouds seemed to be following him. And when he finally thought he'd outrun it, he got out of his truck and was hit by a lightning bolt. <laughs> now, now this, time, this time it set his hair on fire, moved down his left arm and left leg and knocked off his shoe, then crossed over to his right leg uh, just below the knee. Now, oh my God. Wait, we're not even finished yet. Three years later, uh, he, he injured his ankle when he saw another cloud that he thought was following him, tried to run away, hurt his ankle, fell over and then got struck by lightning. And the final time was one more year later in 1977 when he was fishing in a freshwater pool. Now, once again, the lightning hit him on the top of his head. His poor hair got set on fire one more time. The lightning travelled down and burnt his chest and stomach. Um, Now, here's, here's where the story gets really interesting. So he turns to his car to run back to his car after being hit by lightning, uh, at which point a bear approaches the pond and tries to steal the trout from his fishing line. Now... You know, you just know that your luck's not in. Apparently at one point in time, his wife and he were hanging out the laundry um, in their backyard and she got hit by lightning, although that time he escaped unharmed. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now two of Sullivan's ranger hats are actually on display in the Guinness Book of World Records, presumably with holes in them. Uh, One of them is in New York City and one of them is in the beautiful state of South Carolina. Uh, and this week I was reading about an English guy who, having never been struck before, got hit by a bolt of lightning in three separate countries in the space of a couple of weeks. But he survived uh, and apparently found the whole thing quite energising. So I, 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 was, <laughs> I was reading these stories and I figured, you know what, this week I am going to be 
heavily oh, long lightning bolts. How how are you? Were you in stitches at all? I mean, I feel like I've just been struck by lightning. It's a tr- it's a tremendous story. It's a tremendous story. And, oh and so my god! I am unequivocally, unequivocally all in and long lightning bolts. Well, perfect. Um, I don't know if that translates into a, a long utilities, but I think uh, defensives yeah, are going to do better than consumers. Possibly that's the lesson. I know here. we're a financial podcast, but I think that is one of the best longs <laughs> yeah, I've ever heard is. in my life. Well, there you go. You've got to be long lightning bolts, fellas. Awesome. Well, Grant, thanks for that. Let's let's move on to our documentary future for the week, where we will be introing the history of financial crises and scandals. So, Grant, financial crises and, and scandals, it's a favorite topic of mine, um, and I love discussing it with people, uh, because when you finally get, when you explain it to them in a way that is relatable and approachable, their eyes kind of light up. They're like, wait, that's not possible, you know? Um, and, and so hopefully we can bring this sort of feeling and, and bring this... Um, I don't want to call it an enlightenment, but enthusiasm to a wider audience. And so our intention with this is to have sort of an ongoing series in the podcast where we were, on a regular basis, we're going to touch on different scandals and crises throughout history. But Grant, I want to ask you, first of all, when did you first become a student of history? Oh, look, I mean, as a kid, I loved history as a kid. I loved reading about the past, hearing all these stories. You know, you, you know I'm a great believer that stories are just the best way that human beings communicate and, you, and when you and when you do study history you realize that it, that it's cyclical you know, you know everything that happens there's been a variation of it before um, and nowhere is that more true than than financial history because uh, you know we are cyclical um, and I'm a great believer in, in the Santayana quote that, that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it and, and yet and yet I find as I, as I travel around and talk to people um, so few really do understand and have a working knowledge of financial history. And, and I've been amazed that when you read about crises gone past, when you read Devil Take the Hindmost, or you read um, Extraordinary Popular Delusions, or you read Lords of Finance, you know, these are all extraordinary books that really give you some insight into not only what happened in the past, but clearly what's happening now. So you know, I, I can't recommend this stuff highly enough. You know, another great one, which, um, which we're going to talk about in, in a little bit more detail, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator by Edwin Lefebvre, which... Uh, which talks about uh, the great Jesse Livermore. You know, that, this is another book that, that I read and it, it had a profound effect on me. And, and as we're about to find out, uh, I wasn't the only one. So I was lucky enough, fortunate enough to have um, a company called Harriman House uh, publish my first book uh, last year. And on the back of that, they asked me to, to write the foreword to a reissue of one of the most famous books, one of the most famous financial books of all time, which is... Uh, uh, Reminiscences of a Stock Operator by Edwin Lefebvre. That's Tim Price, partner and director of investment at PFP Wealth Management. Which is effectively a, a, a thinly veiled biography of a guy called Jesse Livermore. And Jesse Livermore was probably one of the most, if not the most notorious uh, Wall Street traders of the sort of, you know, the, the early 20th century. And this is a guy who made and lost several fortunes during the course of his lifetime. Yeah, Jesse Livermore... Uh, he's one of, if not the greatest speculators in American history. Uh, just to give you some perspective, Livermore's net worth over time, uh, and this is in 2017 terms, started in 1892 when he was 15 years old, where he netted profits worth $27,000 in 2017 terms. Now, you fast forward to 1907, uh, you know, post-1907 market crash, this is when he was 30 years old, he had a net worth of $78 million dollars. Now, fast forward to the post-1929 Wall Street market crash, and this is when he's 52 years old, he had a net worth of $1.4 billion. 
Now, it's also very important to point out that he also went bankrupt several times in his career. You know, he he, he was a speculator. He, he wasn't necessarily an investor. Uh, and I think it's a very, very important distinction to make for people. Reminiscences of a stock operator is just required reading for anyone that is ever going to do anything with money. And what what comes out of it? It's a joy to read. I had the, the pleasure of sort of rereading it over Christmas to you know to, to to write this forward for the book. And what what leaps out of it is I mean, I'm sort of paraphrasing Livermore now, but it effectively human nature does not change. And so that the kind of principles that that Livermore stroke his his, his character. Uh, uh, I think Larry Livingston, it might be in the book. Um, but basically, the things that he gets up to, the, the, the strategies that he implements are, are basically uh, variations on the theme of systematic trend following. And the reason why that strategy, I think, I have a lot of conviction that it works over the, the medium to long term. And I think that the main reason why it works is because human nature, you know, to, to, to practically quote Livermore in the book, human nature simply doesn't change. Well, so for those of you who don't know, um, systematic trend following is basically, it's a trading strategy that's based on price and technical rules. So there's no fundamentals, ratios, valuation metrics, balance sheet analysis, there's none of that. And it's actually intimately linked to this concept of momentum, where the main objective is to discover when a trend starts and ends. So I, I guess, why do trend following strategies still work nearly 100 years on? Well, that's because human nature doesn't change. And when you look at human nature through the lens of history, you see the recurring themes of fear, greed, panic, and euphoria. These are universal to humans. Yeah, they're universal and and they're repeatable, and and you can see them. And, you know, to my, to my point at the top of this uh, at the top of this segment, this is exactly what happens. Human beings don't change. We do the same things over and over and over again. You know, that's why we get this boom bust cycle. That's why we get the greed and fear episodes. That's why you know we, here we are in bubble territory so soon after 08. Like we were after two thousand, like we were over after eighty seven and ninety nine. I mean, it's 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 a repeating trend. It's very simple uh, to establish. It's just hard in the moment to understand it for a lot of people. And, you know, and as fascinating as history is, you know, you have to do something with that knowledge. I guess the reason it's it's useful um, is. Is it's like that old line, you know, fool me once, you know, shame on you, fool me twice, you know, shame on me, or that whichever phrase it was that uh, W really butchered uh, when he tried to, to repeat it. There's, it doesn't hurt to be uh, forewarned of the kind of behavior that's led to, to, to huge problems in the past. That doesn't necessarily mean you can avoid. Uh, occasions of sort of delu- mass delusional insanity in the future, but to sort of to quote Mark Twain, history may not repeat, but it does. It does sometimes rhyme. So, being familiar with past episodes of whether it's whether it's fraud or whether it's you know delusional behaviour can only help in the cause of basically trying to, if nothing else, not necessarily uh, exploit future delusional behavior, but simply avoid some of the, some of the minefields. You know, Grant, his, the, the quote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. That is one of my all-time favorite quotes. Uh, but fun fact for you, no, there's actually no conclusive evidence that the quote is attributable to Mark Twain. And uh, I did a little bit of research, and the closest attribution that I could find was uh, referencing an 1874 edition of the book, the Gilded Age, A Tale of Today, where, in, where, in, where Mark Twain writes, history never repeats itself, 
but the kaleidoscope combinations of the pictured present often seem to be constructed out of the broken fragments of antique legends. Well, you know, it, it's it's an it's what the French would say an embarras de richesse that that I've experienced. Um, I, my background was in before I went into portfolio management. My background was in the credit market. So the first crisis that I experienced for well, the first crisis I experienced sort of firsthand. I was really more of an an observer. Would have been the the 1992 sterling ERM crisis when. The pound sterling was ethnically cleansed from the exchange rate mechanism, um, and that was that was actually not not a bad way to start. So, just a historical um, sort of summary is that, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, I mean, we, we were, the UK was looking for a, an economic policy, uh, and they decided to effectively to to enter the exchange rate mechanism, uh, which was if which was pretty much the equivalent of shadowing the Deutschmark. Uh, the be, be the precursor to the euro, effectively, or uh, uh, the the Deutsche Mark being the the dominant currency with, within Europe. Um, and the problem was we went in at the wrong rate. Uh, we, we went in at uh, the sterling was uh, was pegged to the Deutsche Mark at a time when you know we were effectively in recession and the German economy was actually booming after reunification. So the whole thing was misaligned. The whole thing was a disaster waiting to happen. You know. I find this fascinating. The Black Wednesday um, episode, I think, has such importance to it. Um, and it's more a, an importance around what's been forgotten than what's been remembered. Now, as, as Tim says, it was a disaster waiting to happen. But I, for me, the crucial thing about Black Wednesday that people have forgotten is it was September 1992. It was, it, was, uh, it was a long, long time, 25 years ago now. Um, this was the last time uh, that the central bankers were punched in the face by the markets. And I've spoken about this before, but people forget in this age of, of omnipotence when they have unlimited printing presses, which they, they didn't dare use back in those days. Um, but once the market saw weakness, and there's all the stories about George Soros breaking the pound and forcing the, the Bank of England out of uh, the ERM, once the market saw weakness, once they saw that um, despite strong protestations 24 hours earlier, the Chancellor um, at the time was weak. The market pounced and punched him squarely in the face. And there, and there, there he was, um, Norman Lamont, with um, with uh, one of his uh, one of his young lackeys, a, a young George Osborne at the time, standing on the steps, uh, explaining why they were pulling the pound sterling out of the ERM purely and simply because the market had overwhelmed them. This is so important to understand. We talk about history not repeating itself. We talk about the lessons you learn from history. You know, right now, ask anybody if they think the central banks uh, are more powerful than the markets, and they will tell you that they are. The simple truth is they're not. They just happen to be for the time being. And, and for me, the one lesson that I learned out of this was, you know, markets are way, way more uh, more powerful than central bankers. And, and though that hasn't been proved in this case, I suspect at some point it will be. That's my thoughts and my reminiscences, uh, not of a stock operator, but of uh, someone that traded through uh, Black Wednesday. But let's get back to Tim's experience at the time. Anyhow, the to, to cut to the chase, the, the the time that it actually the crisis reached its its height, this sort of fever pitch. I was well, I won't name names, but I was working for a, a second tier Japanese uh, investment bank, um, and the day uh, when the, the when our rates started to sort of started just to sort of soar up into the wide blue yonder in a futile attempt to protect the the, the pound. Um, the, the 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 traders in the dealing room I was in 
um, they were going, oh my God, I can't believe this. And, you know, oh, my mortgage and oh, and it was just, it was, it was sort of classic, you know, fear reaction of, I, I hate to say it, but basically uninformed, uninformed people. However, when I was discussing this uh, pretty much at the time with my brother, who worked for, again, without naming names, he worked for a grown-up, uh, professional, uh, experienced investment uh, business and, and dealing room. And there, the the first, I think the first hike in rates that day was met with just disbelief. And the second, the second hike was met with just outright laughter. So no, the, the whole dealing room just erupted in it erupted in a sort of a you know applause and sort of again it was it was a bit like a fest a comic comedy festival so the distinction was with the the relatively uninformed uh traders that i was working with it was a shock panic and and denial whereas with a, a slightly more sophisticated audience it was uh <laughs> these guys have lost the plot this is not going to happen uh it, this is going to get reversed very very quickly which of course it was yeah, you know, I, I have a similar recollection to um, to that which Tim talks about here. You know, in, in the trading room I was in, um, the whooping and wailing when they when they put interest rates up, and the number of people that were desperate to go and lock in those rates by buying bonds. It was it was extraordinary because everybody knew, and this is a very experienced trading desk. To Tim's point, everybody knew that there was no way that was going to last. And you know, if you if you bring that again, we're, we're talking about history this week, and we're talking about how things repeat. If you bring that forward to today where you have entire trading desks who have not traded through a hiking cycle. Um, you know, we've talked about this before. Again, you are going to see reactions that uh, are not in tune with what's actually going on. Once once we start to change the market narrative to either one of a hiking cycle, a true hiking cycle, which I, which I admit I, I think is a low probability. I mean, the Fed will hike until they break something because they always do. Um but I think people have been conditioned in these last few years, uh, and they are uninformed, they, and they do think things only go in one direction. So I, so I think we could see some heightened volatility that catches a lot of people out, a lot of people that, that don't have the kind of experience that, that the train disc uh, Tim's brother was on and the one I was had on back in 1992 had. And so, Grant, I guess that's why history is so important, right? Because especially if you're someone who's new to the industry or, or even just new to, 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 to you know financial markets, you have to read that history so that even though you didn't live through it, you have some sort of reference or frame of reference. Um, but you know, at this point, let's recap. History is a study of human nature, and you can use it to hopefully avoid episodes of, as Tim calls it, mass delusion. But actually press them on the list a little bit because you know, there's always this debate between nature and nurture. And I was wondering, you know, what is that dynamic between the inherent traits and our environment, uh, environmental impact? Because Imagine, say, say you're growing up, right, uh, and you you grow up through the 1929 Wall Street crash, you live through the Great Depression, and then World War II. You'd imagine that this generation had, maybe let's say, less hubris um, after being shaped by this experience? I, I, I think you have to uh, at least be sympathetic or sensitive to the argument that, that one is conditioned by one's environment. So, I mean, I'm a value investor everything that informs what 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 we do within our business is ultimately drawn from if if we were to, to cite one influence it would be ben graham so benjamin graham is writing the intelligent investor he's he's obviously written other things but the intelligent investor i think was published in 1949 but it was written in the aftermath of the the great depression and for anyone that basically was alive and had money and savings in the 1930s, they never went. St- they never went near stocks again. You couldn't give U.S. stocks away. People would vomit at the idea of even touching them. 
So the generation that effectively was the sort of, you know, that fought in the Second World War and then and then lived afterwards would have be, would have been a very risk averse, a very conservative, a very bond favoring type uh, mentality. Um, and then, you know, clearly we've had a few generations since then. And there's there's a, an excellent piece that I've just started reading. I think it's in the current issue of Barron's magazine by uh, Jeremy Grantham. But he, he, he makes the point that, you know, you've got effectively the to, to use the sort of the to put things on the metric side that the Schiller price earnings that cyclically adjusted P for the, uh, the US market or the CAPE, so-called CAPE ratio. The CAPE ratio was in it was in a, a, a relatively modest range of, let's say, you know, potential overvaluation, undervaluation until around 97. And then since 97, it's gone into the stratosphere and we've had. Uh, a market correction. We've had two market corrections since since the millennium, since the start of the millennium. Um, but the market never became cheap. So he, he's kind of he, he's not necessarily saying that's a, a lasting uh, uh, situation. I, I think there's, there's something to that in, in what he writes. But because it's partly driven by you know the improved profitability of um, very large U.S. corporations and the kind of sort of global mega caps. Who I, I sense that sort of you know time, time the sands of time are running out for those kind of companies now because there's a bit of a, a cultural backlash against globalization. But uh, he's absolutely right to, to to question whether you can necessarily look at the world through a kind of Ben Graham value prism in isolation without being uh, respectful of the fact that you know this the, the environment may well have changed. It's changed for at least let's say a sort of twenty year period. Where the market never became cheap, and if you were viewing it through a, a classic Graham and Dodd, um, you know, perspective, then you would have been out of the market for the last twenty years, at least out of the U.S. market. And so, for those of you who don't know, the CAPE ratio is the cyclically adjusted PE ratio, or also known as the Schiller PE. And what this is is basically it's a price divided by average of ten years of earnings adjusted for inflation, and it's meant to assess future equity returns over a longer timescale. All right, so now that I got that out of the way. Grant, it sounds like uh, it sounds like in some ways that look okay. So looking back in history is important, but also relying too much on historical valuations or or, or history, uh, you know, it could have kept you out of the the two bull markets that we've had since. So, so what do you make of this new environment, old environment thing? Well, I, I think there was so much in what Tim said there that's that's worth picking over. I mean, you know, this is we're talking about cycles within cycles here. You know, the bigger cycles remain unaffected. But when Tim talks about, you know, this time it's different, maybe it is different. I think what you have to understand there is is at certain points in the cycle, different things do happen. You know, in the short term, yes, this time is different. Why? Because central bankers are printing trillions of dollars out of thin air. That's never happened before. So clearly, this time is different. But really, all that does is stave off the natural cycle of events, the boom, the bust, you know, the, 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 the growing of the grass and then the washing out and the, the burning of the of the excess grass. And, and this is where we are. What it's done is extend the cycle. So yes, in the short term, different things are being tried. In the long term, the cycle remains the same. It's just been elongated. You know, Tim, Tim also talked about value investing. Uh, and, and, you know, who was it that was buying equities in, in September of 2008 to March of 2009? You know, it was value guys. The speculators, the traders, they were all jumping out as fast as they could. A lot of institutional long money was dumping money. The value investors were the guys who'd been sitting there waiting for that to happen. You know, it's a hard thing to be a value investor. It's a hard thing 
to, to sit and be patient when everybody else is um, is getting caught up in in momentum. But it's a very important thing to do, and you make far fewer decisions as a value investor. Um, but generally speaking, over the longer term, they work very, very well. But I think you know, t- Tim makes some great points there. You, you do have to live in the moment, and you do have to think, okay, is it different, and if so, why? And if, if, if you think it's changed and you can identify why, then you need to figure out, okay, what does this do to the bigger cycle? And clearly, quantitative easing and money printing around the world has uh, extended this cycle. It, it, it hasn't... Uh, it hasn't meant that this the downward half of the business cycle is going away. It's not, um, but it looks like it to a lot of people that that have got caught up in it. So, so I think be be cognizant of the short term effects that new strategies and techniques are having on the broader market, but but you better be aware of the overall overriding trend. And Grant, I think it's so interesting when you talk about um, the investors, the value guys who stepped in in two thousand eight, and you know they didn't they didn't. You know, try and catch a falling knife, but when the knife finally fell and hit the ground, they were there to pick it up. Um, but if you look at today's market, we've moved further away from that generation that was schooled in value investing. When when uh, Graham's book came out, you know, Security Analysis uh, or the Intelligent Investor came out, uh, we're, we're very far removed from that generation. And the current generation or, or the the largest demographic of investors now, they've only seen markets move up to the right top right corner. I suspect it comes back to that word hubris. I suspect it comes down to overconfidence that there's something about the next generation that always feels like it knows better than everybody else. So um, it's like the the phrase, this time it's different. Uh, And I think probably the first time that I started hearing that phrase really setting in, that really became a meme would have been in 98, 99, you know, the, the run-up or the, the, the mid to the terminal phase of the first dot-com boom. And I guess it's a, a sort of general feeling that, yeah, yeah, it's actually, if there's anyone that's going to be associated with that, it's going to be uh, Jim Cramer from the street.com. Um, and I remember him him saying or writing words to the effect that, you know, all that old, you know, Graham and Dodd type stuff. Well, you know, you could just, you know, stick a fork in it. It's done, you know, because that's not how business is now. Business is now, you know, it's clicks, it's monetizing eyeballs. And, you know, and you read this and you read this with the benefit of, you know, 17 years hindsight. And you think, I cannot believe a sentient person uttered those words. Ouch. Well, yeah, I mean, sentient. (laughs) Sentient. He, look, he he went back seventeen years. Just 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 go back nine to Bear Stearns is fine. Don't fr- shy away from buying Bear Stearns. Don't shy away from Lehman Brothers is fine. Look, Jim Cramer's out there to be a lightning rod. Um, you know, he, he he basically fronts an entertainment show, and and it is very entertaining. But uh, these are dangerous things to say, and and they're dangerous things to tell people who are looking upon you for advice and and I think it's it's important to understand that value investing there's a there's a certain depth to it that you don't have when people like Kramer get up and talk about you know hey what are we doing in the markets today it's uh to me it's it's a very dangerous place to play well grant I want to bring this back to Tim's experience because I couldn't let him off the hook without asking for his favorite financial crisis I wouldn't necessarily say it's my favorite because it, it, it's it's the the book that I that I wrote myself. So it's just a quick plug for that. But that enabled me to give a, a, a sort of like let's say a hopefully entertaining um, jog through uh, market history and particularly the, the history of financial crises. And that's a book called Investing Through the Looking Glass, which is hours of fun for all the family and available from all good bookshops. But if we were to go to something 
that that's that's maybe has a bit more gravitas i would probably go with uh roger lowenstein's book when genius failed which is the account of the the collapse of long-term capital management and i think the 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 relevance of ltcm from today's perspective would be that this is an event that happened uh, as a result of some overconfident hedge fund managers yeah ltcm was an interesting one because it it required a bailout required all the banks to get together um and it was something that rippled right through the system uh, and i think the important takeaway from ltcm was was both the reaction of uh central banks who panicked because this was really the first time we'd seen quote unquote the system could go down here because these uh these geniuses um had trillions of dollars of derivatives that uh that basically imploded but more importantly i think it's the is the example set for what came after and the fact that ltcm was bailed out uh really there's a there's a clear line from that to what happened in in uh in 2008 but arguably the the more ominous sort of precedent that it set was that it, it showed you what happens when the central bank steps in bails out bails out a sort of let's say a bad player um and then slashes interest rates by way of a policy response so i think you could argue that, that the collapse of ltcm was basically the dry run for 2008 but i mean if 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 98 gave us ltcm and 2008 gave us a near you know uh, exti- extinction level event for wall street then you know you you have to wonder what what what's ahead because each time uh, with a lag the crisis these crises just be get bigger and bigger and bigger and require more and more and more by way of you know, intervention, and those interventions beget further interventions. So, uh, suffice to say, I'm sort of hunkering, hunkering down in my own little value bunker, and uh, barely daring to sort of, you know, pop my head above the, the parapet. Yeah, Grant. You know, prior to the last three rate hikes uh, that stretched over a span of uh, a year and a half, basically. Uh, I mean, we had over a hundred months of zero percent Fed funds rate interest rates, and I just shudder to think about what's next. You know, there's not much further we can travel along this road. I mean, we had you know, we had 650 rate cuts over a, over a short period of time around the world. Um, and look, what what's next is, as I said earlier, the Fed will hike until they break the market. And I, and I think they probably understand this because and if they don't, you know, it's even more frightening because it always happens that the problem at this point is I think when they break it uh, this time around. The damage is going to be far more severe, uh, you know, and I fully expect them to to drop rates immediately. Uh, they will know that the quantum of damage to be done next time the market breaks is such that they won't ease rates by a quarter of a basis point, uh, a quarter of a, of a percentage point. They will they will drop them straight to zero. Um, and and look, who knows? We could see negative rates in the U.S. Uh, I really do do fear for what happens when um, the these what does Jim Grant call them the tenured economic professors. Um, when they next break the market, and and it'll happen because it always does. Again, back to these historical cycles. And Grant, at this point, we really haven't had the chance to touch on information technology's impact on, let's say, historical memory. Uh, you know, it's a huge and, and loaded topic, and we're probably not doing it justice in this short segment. But you know, these days, history is recorded, consumed, and and basically forgotten about at, at an increasing rate. So my question to Tim was, how do you contextualize history when it is chewed on and spat out at such a fast rate? That's a great question. Uh, I, I, I think I, I fear that the 
one of the the biggest downsides. I mean, the, the the information revolution and the internet are just amazing things. We you just have to accept that you know we've got godlike power now. Um, but I suppose the, the 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 you know the the flip side of that is 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 embodied in a quote that I often use. I and I by I've used it so frequently by now I should uh, be able to quote the source, but I can't remember the source. But either way, I'll give it you anyway. Which is you know there was an American uh, professor who was giving a, a class and he was saying. You know, it used to be said that if you gave a million monkeys a million keyboards, you'd end up with the complete works of Shakespeare. Now, thanks to the Internet, we know this is not the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the real downside of, 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 of the web and, and, and sort of modern globalized in, in instant communication is we have no memory anymore. Um, so and, and more to the point, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's necessarily reversible, a reversible trend to the extent that why need a memory if, if ultimately if you want to find anything out you can go onto google or wikipedia you don't need to know anything anymore sorry um uh, grant was speaking about your hair um and made me lose my train of thought sorry thanks grant this is this is the problem people today have got such a short attention span <laughs> there we go no that's, to- that's totally my fault because i was just giving aaron the thumbs up at what you're saying and he's looking at me like i was trying to tell him something so that's, that's my and point. the other problem today is that people have got such short attention spans. Sorry, what? Sorry, say that again. <laughs> and, and, and the other problem today is that people have got such short attention spans. I can't believe that happened. It's hilarious when the point basically proves itself. <laughs> right. I mean, it's yeah, it is. It's, it's so funny. And, and God bless Tim. You know, he's a he's a funny, funny guy, and, and I love spending time uh, sitting and talking with him because uh, you know you you always learn something uh, and you always walk away smiling. So, 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 so getting back to the interview, you know, at, at this point, I, I wanted to ask him because I was curious as to which period um, in financial history that he looks to uh, as the best, most accurate roadmap for where we are now. The, the scary thing about the 87 crash is that, well, I suppose there's two scary things about it. The, the first is that it, it occurred at a time when the US market was, was barely even overvalued by modern standards. So in other words, it kind of came out of, came out of a, a clear sky. And the other thing that, that's maybe more ominous is that I, I, I suspect if, if historians or economic historians are in any kind of agreement about what, what caused the crash, well, forget what the, the, the initial event was. I think most would now concur that what made it more severe was portfolio insurance which was the thing that was supposed to protect people not the thing that was supposed to trigger a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah you know look portfolio insurance um broke the market in 87 it was a very simple uh simple idea that you would you know hedge your stocks uh, by short selling index futures it really wasn't when you boil it down any more complicated uh, than that uh, but everybody was doing it and um you know, it, it, it just fed upon itself. It, it, when you have these dynamic hedging strategies, once they start reversing and once they start going the other direction, as we found in 87, um, they just feed upon themselves. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, in, in the context of talking about portfolio insurance, it, it struck me that this this simplification, these ideas that seem like they're so good and so simple, they spread like wildfire. And we find ourselves 30 years later, once again, the beneficiaries of tremendous financial innovation uh, only this time it's not portfolio insurance that is embraced by money managers to try and make life simpler for us this little gem has been fully invo- embraced by perhaps the most dangerous group of all the investing public so i i just wonder now whether um the system because there's so much more leverage there's so much more risk for want of it, latent risk 
sort of spread like unexploded ordnance throughout the market, whether those things that people now believe are going to be stabilizers will end up not just not working, but sort of actively adding to the to the potential carnage or, or, or volatility to come. And by way of sort of system, I'm referring in part here to things like ETFs, where people have people have flooded into low cost funds, but there, there seems to be a growing belief that low cost equates to low risk, whereas it's it, it's not. It's just it's just making markets tradable in a way that perhaps they perhaps it would if it would be ultimately in people's best interest if they were less tradable, because uh, if you have an instrument that that has a very low transactional anchor attached to it, you're going to be more likely to trade it. Whereas uh, it is it is said that for sort of higher cost actively managed funds, people are less willing to to churn them to trade them because they know what the costs are and they they tend to be more patient. And I think that's an interesting observation about this, today's markets. So Grant, we've kind of beaten this to death, I think, over the last couple of weeks, especially while you're here, is that you know these four X levered ETFs, the and then there's also the ETF of ETFs, and this thing just gets crazier and crazier, and and these things are created for the sole purpose of spurring ever greater speculation. Yeah, look, look, people are greedy, right? Um, and they want ways to uh, to make quick profits. What, what better way to do that than a, than a four times levered ETF? You know, this reminds me of seven minute abs from something about Mary. You know, eight minute abs is no good. I've got a great idea to get rich, and that's seven-minute abs. <laughs> you know, this is the problem, that these these vehicles are made to facilitate speculation by people that really shouldn't be speculating in, in such a fashion. Um, and although they haven't fallen over yet, uh, there is no doubt in my mind that when the next crisis happens, the ETF phenomenon and the, num- the number of people and the amount of money that's been herded into them is going to be ground zero for the, for the problems that we're going to see happen. Yeah, that's going to be, um, yeah, ground zero is, is definitely an apt way of describing it. But, but Grant, just to cap things off, you know, I, I asked him to put on his future historian hat and to assess present day. Historians of the future will look back at this, this period and just ask, what on earth were these people smoking? Uh, the idea that, uh, that money can be, can be printed out of thin air by central banks and then used to buy productive real assets, I find uh, is astonishing, scary, and yet it's a, it's now become a global phenomenon. The, the idea that, uh, that, that, well, the idea that the whole financial system can effectively be, be hijacked by a, a bunch of self-appointed and realistically largely anonymous unelected bureaucrats, I, I find absolutely staggering. Um, so I guess if, if I mean, we talk, the, the sort of theme of the discussion is sort of crises and scandals. I, I, for me, we're, we're in a kind of, um, what is the, I'm trying to think what the appropriate phrase might be, but it's, it's, it's a sort of a, an, an, an omni shambles was the word that I think Armando Iannucci called, uh, he coined for the thick of it. So I'd say we're now living in an, an omni shambles uh, where, and this is the crowning irony, where the people... Who, who ordinarily are tasked with saving the financial system, I suspect are going to end up destroying it. So, you know, I, I know I may be wrong. This system may, may, be, may be Teflon. It may, it may go on. It, it, well, it already has gone on for years, and it may well persist years into the future. But I would defy anybody, uh, any objective observer, 
to state why this system is sounder now than it was, say, back in 2007, 2008. All we've done is added however many trillion dollars to the debt pile. This is, you know, as someone has said, that which is unsustainable cannot go on forever. At some point, it has to stop. And at some point, it is going to have to stop. Well, Grant, I'm, I'm glad we finally got to uh, visiting financial history. Um, and in, in the past half an hour, we, we, we kind of skimmed over some episodes of financial history. Uh, we looked at the Sterling ERM crisis. We talked about a little bit about the LTCM bailout. And we also talked about 1987 crash. But, you know, I'm excited for future episodes where we're going to take a look at you know, specific episodes of crises and scandals and bring them forward in time. And hopefully we can light a fire in our listeners to explore history for themselves. And most importantly, to learn the lessons of history. Yeah, it's it's so important. It's, it's a subject dear to my heart. And uh, I think the one thing we want to do through this series as, as we roll it out is exactly that, Aaron, is get people interested in financial history. Go back and read it. The beauty of it is there are, there are accounts of all these periods in time. And it's it's funny, when you read about them, you can't help but join the dots. And I think it'll help everybody understand better the world we're in and understand better the likely path. It's it's always the same. It's just the time frame that, that that's impossible to know. But the outcome uh, is always pretty much baked in the cake and you'll learn all that stuff by reading about financial history. Yep, so definitely look out for that. And finally, we've come to the segment called Things I Got Wrong, where we speak with a market expert about an investing hiccup they made, and then we ask them to share a pearl of wisdom they've plucked from that experience. And, and this week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Alex Gurevich. Yeah, Alex Alex is just a great guy. I mean, he's, uh, he's, he's funny as hell, but just wickedly smart. And, uh, you know, he's not afraid to, to call things exactly as he sees them. And as I alluded to at the top of the program... Um, he really is just just a very individual mind, uh, a very experienced trader, a great author, um, and uh, and yeah, it's, it was fun, it was fun to listen to Alex talk about mistakes he's made. All right, so joining us this week is Alex Gurevich. Alex is the founder and chief investment officer of Haunte Investments, and also the author of the book "The Next Perfect Trade: A Magic Sword of Necessity." Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, it's good to be with you. You're the former head of global macro trading at JP Morgan. You also write uh, the Market Philosopher blog. You, you have such an interesting background. So um, in broad strokes, can you tell us a little bit about your backstory and also the way you look at markets? Well, the way I came to my mar- to markets, I think, from my passion for strategy. Uh, I've always, besides being a mathematician through training, I always had a passion for games and for not just finding an analytical solution, but finding a system of responses to events, to opponents' moves, if you wish. So financial markets were naturally fascinating to me. And uh, when there was a junction in my career, I took the opportunity to go into trading and kind of jumped into, jump into it head first. And that was in 97, so now I have almost 20 years of uh, doing various things in financial markets. Well, incredible. Um, about the strategy and, and especially system of responses. Now, I'd imagine that as you're playing a game, you're responding to certain inputs and certain uh, information that you receive through your prior actions. So uh, sticking with the, the theme of this segment, which is things I got wrong, can you tell us about a time uh, you got something wrong and what you learned from it? Yes, I think uh, there is a whole category of things that I sometimes got wrong in my career, and I'll give you an example. But the key error that macro traders like myself do, so people like myself have to look at a world as a whole. We, I will look at uh, movements and currencies, interest rates, and sometimes we 
tend to think that because we're successful traders, we're actually great economists. And we can forecast inflation, growth, and other things. Or even political elections, as last year showed, this was this is not a very good business of forecasting political elections. And then you best, uh, so when you are successful, you tend to think of yourself as an expert in every subject. And I'm not not actually an expert economist. I have some understanding of economy, and but mostly I need economists to build paradigms. What I can do, I can find strategies that take what's going on in the world, which is take the facts and design a strategy rather than try to think of the facts. And um, the other simple way to think of it is I can recognize the what, but a mistake people make is by trying to decipher the when and the how. And if you wish, I can give it a concrete example, which is close to everybody's heart and has to do with global financial crisis. Yeah, please do. Um, I had a very interesting conversation with a friend recently who was saying, oh, the bankers could foresee the financial crisis and they took advantage of it. And I said, no, we could not foresee it. At that time, I was a JP Morgan right before it, right? I couldn't foresee it. He's like, no, you did foresee it. I remember you telling me in 2006 that uh, there will be a huge crisis with mortgages, that will be a huge legal problem. And I told him, well, you know what? If I foresaw it correctly, I would be the richest person in the world right now. The fact is that I did recognize certain problems with the economy. I did recognize the what. I saw that there was a I saw that People did not understand the terms of their own mortgages. Yes, I was aware of that. I was aware that a lot of money was being printed relative to the actual real wealth created. So there was a lot of paper, be that mortgage paper or some other paper. And that came on the back of several years of wars of September 11th, of a lot of money growth, but not actually a lot of this money growth came from destruction, not from construction. And I saw the discrepancy between paper money and the real wealth. By paper money, I mean like what people have nominally. Like if you look at people's number that say a corporation is worth or a mortgage is worth versus what is actually behind it. It was purely intuitive understanding, but I think this understanding was correct on my part of the what. But I became to think like, well, if there is too much money, and two little assets, we're going to have to have inflation. So my bet in 2006 became the bet on high interest rates and hyperinflation. But what my mistake was that recognizing the water made an assumption of the how, that is how this what will be fixed via inflation. And what I did not understand back then, not being a good economist, is that extra money can go into asset inflation, but not into goods inflation, so that it maybe stocks and bonds might get overpriced, but it doesn't mean that wages will go catastrophically up. So instead of correcting this problem via hyperinflation, we've corrected this problem by assets prices going down by both stocks and corporate bonds and every kind of debt collapsing in 2007. And this was not my central view, and I don't think I was very well prepared for exactly that to happen in 2007. While 2006 was a good year for me because rates were going up, 2007 was not. 
And there were other reasons that uh, why I may have been wrong in 2007, and there might some trades that might have not worked out. But the fundamental error was not really was really back in 2006 when I thought that rates were going to go significantly higher, as opposed to exactly opposite what happened. Alex, I, I want to return back to um, the comment you made about just be, you know being a trader versus being an economist or even being a political analyst. And um, I feel like a lot of people also made that that mistake last year, uh, especially with, with all the political events we had, and then now in 2017 with uh, the plethora of political events that uh, in, in Europe. How 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 are you approaching this now? Um, are you still sticking to your framework and, and and avoiding trying to make these political forecasts, or, or have you have you weighed into how are you dealing with this dynamic? Yes, I'm trying to find uh, where my principles of superior trades work, and I'm trying to kind of close my eyes on politics a little bit. But when I see things politically skewed uh, in my favor, I actually try to get out of the way. Uh, I, I, let me just clarify what I what I am explaining. I've been lo- I've been short euro for several years. And it's been my one of my core positions was very short euro. But before French election, I recognized that euro is being uh, pushed down by the fears associated with French election. And I had no opinion about how French election was going to come out beyond the polls. But I started to feel that being short euro is becoming to be a gamble on French elections. So I actually closed down the short euro position right before the election, which turned out to be correct this time. So this time I kind of learned a lesson. And I closed down a euro position before election, which is, for example, something uh, similar things that I could have done last year. To There was a time to get out of long U.S. bond position be, right on the night of U.S. election, and I didn't do it correctly. This time I've learned to do it, and I got out of short euro before French election, and that worked in my favor. And the reason is because I just felt that it would be just a pure gamble to stay short euro in this situation, just hoping for some kind of catastrophic outcome. You're talking about the difference between knowing the what and then juxtaposing that with the the when and the how, how do you, you know, how do you, <laughs> I'm asking you how now, how do you bridge that gap between the what and then the when and the how? I think what I try to do, I try to have no opinion on when and how. I just focus on the what, I focus on what is the incontroversial fact, and then just wait for it to happen, not asking yourself when it's going to happen and uh, how it's going to happen. For example, one of the best examples of this would be the Japanese situation over the last few years. By like 2010, it was clear that yen was too strong. That was the what. Japan was lagging. Japanese stock market was doing doing not so well. They had an unreasonably strong currency. But I could not foresee uh, the exact shift over that happened in the end of 2012 with Japanese politics and the change of government and the rise of Abenomics. And I didn't know that it was going to happen. So I had to wait for a couple of years for something to happen. And it happened in ways I could not have possibly foreseen, but it does happen because it's the what. But if I started to think about when and how and start betting on, start betting on, uh, 
exact timing and exact direction of velocity of yen depreciation, I might have lost money. And I think what is really teaching us this lesson now is China. Right. Yeah. Because uh, it seems like not that it seems crowded, but everyone everyone is uh, you see the, the all the the headlines in Bloomberg about the the situation there with the with the credit expansion and and now you know PBFC tightening uh, credit conditions, trying to root out the speculation. But um, it just seems like a matter of when. But ha- having that patience to wait for that when. Um, must be, especially when you're dealing with these large macro trends, must be kind of challenging, isn't it? It is challenging. I think I have a natural disposition to be patient that way. It's just the way I'm born. So I was always favored in that way that if anything, uh, I always had difficulties with whoever my boss bosses were or investors that I, because they would get impatient with my patience. <laughs> Like, yeah. how long are you going to keep this trade on? I was like, well, till it works in my favor. <laughs> I think the real challenge is to not overstretch yourself. So if you, want, if you think that you're going to be patient on the trade, you just cannot put it in too big a size. You just have to wait and wait, but you have to wait on such a, in such a way that it goes a little bit against you. You don't you're not hurt too much. And that is more art and science, I think, to just figuring out how much you can afford to have and how long you have to wait. Yeah, that's um, that's a great point. And, and I guess it also kind of skirts the people ask, like, what is the difference between uh, being wrong or, or just not, not being right yet? Uh, but no, definitely giving yourself that room is um, is a challenge. Uh, Alex, I want to um, I guess I wanted to cap things off. You, you uh, I, well, one thing I'm looking forward to is to see what happens with the euro, because you're the only person that I've ever heard who who's expressed a thesis that the euro could actually strengthen in the situation where you have a euro breakup, because it effectively becomes a Deutschmark. So I, I'm willing to have the patience to see see how that turns out. But you're the only person who's ever I've ever heard uh, mention that that thesis, which I think is really cool. Um, but uh, can for our listeners who want to read more about your work or maybe get in touch with you, I know you're on Twitter. Can can you let us know uh, where to find your work and how to get in touch with you? So the best way, the best way to find me is via Twitter. It's uh, a Gurevich, A G U R E V I C H, twenty three, two numbers two three. That's like my first name, last name, and two three. And from there, you could find a link to my book, The Next Perfect Trade, which could be found on Amazon. And I also have a Tumblr account, alexgurevich.tumblr.com, but my Twitter account will link to it. And accredited investors may reach me through the website, www.honteinv.com, which is my, uh, my investment firm's website. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time, Alex. Thank you very much. So great. Alex, you know, he was a fascinating guy to talk to and his framework for finding superior trades and, and having the patience to let them play out is something that I would think takes years to build. You know, I read his book and, and it was, it was a heavy read, I'll admit, but it's definitely one of those books that I'll be coming back to, um, you know, numerous times. And, but, but something like finding the superior trades and then having the patience that really forms a foundation of structured and disciplined market speculation, um, and, and to his point about not allowing success in market forecasting to bleed into other fields and staying away from politics and geopolitics, I mean, that's something that I've had to think about as well, but it's difficult, right? Because in 2016 and then now in 2017, there are so many political events that you want to kind of get into and, and start forecasting and making predictions. But I've also, I've tried to stay away and, and how I've done that is by just, you know, reading widely, um, trying to listen to other smart people who are getting it right, like Pippa Malmgren, who completely was spot on with Brexit and Trump. Yeah, look, I think 
politics and geopolitics is the perfect example of this. You know, um, none of us really know what's going on. Um, it, it's such a complicated world filled with complicated people, as anyone that listens to that Diane Abbott car crash um, conversation will will be able to attest. So, so to listening and forming opinions with the help of, uh, although not exclusively, um, people like Pippa, who who has been so so spot on with all this stuff. Um, because she's lived in that world and she's she's moved amongst these people and, and dealt with them and worked with them, and she understands a lot better than many of us lay people how they work. So you know, I think I think it's absolutely right. Steer clear of it if you can, but unfortunately in this day and age, you kind of have to have uh, an overlay to any framework that involves the possible outcomes in in the world of geopolitics. So if you're going to have to put that framework together, uh, get the best inputs you can, and that, and that tends to come from people like Pippa um, and her dad. You know, guys like George Friedman, uh, Ian Bremmer, there's plenty of smart political analysts, uh, political analysts out there. Um, so yeah, they're, they're a valuable input, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Grant, maybe this is a conversation for another time, but I, I feel like the, um, the increase in political risk that we've seen in the past, uh, let's, let's call it like a year and a half, is, is probably reflective of, of the sovereign, I guess you could say the, 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 um, the mountaining sovereign, sovereign debt that we've seen. I mean, governments are at crisis, which is now being reflected in politics. And, you know, in that sense, I don't want to just completely avoid politics because I feel like it is at least a symptom of that debt accumulation uh, of governments. But again, it, I guess it's it's a, it's a double-edged sword because you don't want to veer too far into it. Well, look, you're right. It's a story for another time because it's a story in and of itself. But but look, every time you see political strife, people people struggle to join the dots. But if you go back through history, you will see that political strife always happens around times of financial strife. It, it, it's it's bad management of the economy that leads to the kind of pressures that make people angry and, and cause these sort of upheavals. So you know, if you see this stuff, um, it's a symptom of something else. It, it's not uh, it's not a problem in and of itself. It, it really is symptomatic of wider problems. And you will find, if you go back through history, they tend to be finance-related. Well, Grant, I'm looking forward to carrying on this conversation, but unfortunately we've reached the end of this episode. Uh, before we conclude, just a quick legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and trade responsibly. And obviously, try and avoid lightning bolts. That's another important lesson we learned this week. <laughs> now, next week, we'll be back with the usual long short segment and things I got wrong. And for our feature commentary segment, uh, we're going to be revisiting a fascinating interview with Paul Westra. Paul is a senior research analyst at Stiefel Nicholas, and um, it's really interesting to revisit this because Paul, essentially, he's a he's a fundamental bottom-up ana- analyst, but he was able to derive sort of a macro view from his bottom-up analysis. So uh, Grant and Raul will be revisiting this, and it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, you don't want to miss that. Paul Paul is um, is in the restaurant, analyzes the restaurant sector for a living, and the call he made last year um, to watch it play out now exactly as he said it would... Um, is fascinating and it's it's just great to hear a guy talk about a segment of the economy that he really really knows uh, from the ground up so don't miss that now in the meantime if you have an interesting question about this week's show or for that matter anything else uh, aaron and i would both love to hear it so send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com and if you enjoyed what you heard please subscribe on itunes and leave us a review as i said 
And I keep saying every week that helps us shoot up the rankings. And I'm going to say it too. Please leave those reviews. If you want to keep up to date with the latest uh, interviews, research, publications, and podcast episodes, then please follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. We're also hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can just search for Real Vision. Yes, indeed. Now, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you'll find me at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us. We will see you back here next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com